Hi, I'm Jake Morecambe. I'm Ellen Leibeter. Welcome to Think Sustainability on 2SCR, where we look at practical solutions for a better planet. Today we're talking finance, sustainable investments, investors and money. Because that's what I want. I feel like we could change the music up right here for the, this episode. The best things in life are free. But you can give them to the birds and bees. I want money. Whoa! Well, we're going to be deconstructing the world of impact investment, which essentially means when you place an investment to make a positive social or environmental impact. And that's different from charity, how? Yes, yes, it's different from charity because charity doesn't always issue a return. Uh, These investments are mostly into things like non-profits and social enterprises because the investor can give them the money and then reap the benefits when things grow and start to make that difference. Cool. Uh, We're also going to be talking about charity a little later on and an interesting experiment that showcased the dislike people have for those charity muggers on the street. Oh, God, don't get me started. Everyone's got that pet peeve. (laughs) But up first, it was a hot topic in last week's budget and saw a number of changes to the system. But there's an untold story when it comes to our superannuation. Is a self-managed super fund right for me? Whatever the question, AMP, Australia's experts in SMSF, has the answers. I'd like to think I've saved all my life so I can enjoy it. Honestly, from my super fund, I reckon I should benefit from it. Yes, definitely. It's a good name. Lots of members. That's what you want. It's Australian. And it's super. Australian super. The super fund for all Australians. You may have heard some of these ads on the TV before about where to invest your super. And maybe you've even invested in one of these funds. Superannuation is a big deal because you want to make sure you have the money you need when you reach retirement. Some people are really picky about which super they're with and want to make sure they get the best return they possibly can. Uh, And others maybe not so much. Example, if you're like me and have multiple supers that your pay goes into. You're so disorganised. When your super fund is investing your money, you hope for a decent return. They'll invest that into different industries, shares or properties to try and get you the best rate. But how much do you know about these investments? What are they doing? Where is this money going into? And how might these investments be affecting the planet? Well, I didn't want it to go into anything that I didn't uh, agree with. I didn't want it to go into coal mining or I didn't want it to go into... Uh, tobacco companies or anything like that. I want, you know, that's that's my biggest chunk of investment. I'd rather that was doing good in the world. That's Rod. He's with AMP Super and recently made some big changes to where his money is going. I actually needed to change uh, how it was organised within AMP to get to the ethical investments that I wanted. Um, basically, I said, look, I want to only invest my super in ethical and industries that are going to do good. We broke it down into every little fund that we were looking at and I broke the percentage across the individual uh, funds within the super platform. And they said, right, we'll restructure it and put you into this different area. Some of Rod's investments are also in shares. And one is a Responsible Investment Leaders International Share Fund, BT Ethical Share Fund and a Perpetual Ethical Share Fund. 
So all of those, to be considered an ethical share fund, they have to uh, not invest in things like tobacco and, and coal mining and things like that. They have to be doing things that actually pass an ethical standard. And for Rod, the rate of return on his super isn't the biggest thing on his mind. As long as they're reasonable returns, I don't mind if they're not you know, amazingly impressive because you've got to take a long-term view with these things. If, you, if you're not doing good for the environment, there's no put in making money if you've got nowhere to live. It's nice to hear that there are people out there like Rod who are actually changing their investments because I've thought about it before, but I keep going back into this headspace where I'm like, I'm not going to retire yet. I've got like 10 years to think about this. Well, at least you're a step ahead of me because I, and I feel like a lot of people I'm sure, don't think too much about where that money is going. As super fund members, we just let the funds go into a default option. We don't really think about where it's going. and We think about that maybe sometime later. That's Deborah Cotton. She's a lecturer in the finance discipline group at the University of Technology, Sydney. So research has suggested that it's only a very small percentage who actually actively choose where their super fund money goes. And that percentage might be as low as kind of 15% of investors. Rod mentioned earlier when he was re-evaluating his super that he didn't want his money invested into things like the tobacco industry, which still happens. Uh, What are some of the other things? When we think ethically, we will often think about companies that are maybe not into coal mining, if we're concerned about the environment. We might think of companies that are doing some social good or some welfare benefits. But a lot of the time, it's really more about what we might call negative screening. So what will we not invest in if we're doing it responsibly? So what we might not invest in are companies that we believe maybe are sourcing their goods from um, some South East Asian countries that might have sweatshops and that kind of thing. So Nike, for example, in recent years got in trouble for that kind of work. So one of the interesting mining ones, again, that I think is an interesting kind of dilemma is lithium. So lithium batteries last longer. Battery power is going to be very important if we're going to maintain the renewable energy um, for vehicles and all of those sort of things. But if you look at a lithium mine and see what devastation it does to the environment, then you might think two ways about it. So I think it's very difficult for us kind of individually to decide what's ethical and what's not and what's okay and what's not. And ethical, of course, gets a little bit tied up in environmental Um, sustainable. I think if we're looking at ethical investments, sometimes they will pertain quite a bit to fixed interest. However, a lot of the time with fixed interest, we don't know where the money has been lent to. Whereas if we're investing in an investment that is investing in company shares, then we have a better understanding of where the money's going. Some people are against the idea of greening up their super because if they do, their return could be less than if they were with a major, more mainstream super provider. But according to Deborah, that's not always right. Well, we can argue about that a long way, I think, because the funds that invest in a broad range, so not necessarily ethical, suggest that the ethical investments are missing out on a section of the market by not investing in them. However, um, recent um, returns on funds that invest in only ethical investments are getting just as good a return in kind of one-year, two-year, three-year, five-year horizons as the other investment funds. There's one organisation called Australian Ethical Investment, um, as an example, but in most superannuation funds, so Unisuper where my funds are, there is a responsible investment option that you can actually choose. 
Deborah says it all comes down to your own ethics. Like if I consider coal to be an ethical <laughs> investment, which I can assure you I don't, uh, you may think otherwise. If I can give you an example, cochlea, who do the hearing, there's a couple of problems there because there is the issue is the question is, do you believe in animal testing? A lot of people who want to invest ethically say no, but cochlea do do animal testing in order to achieve good results for their hearing aids. So that's an ethical issue. And the other issue surrounding that one, which I wasn't aware of um, until recently, is that people who are deaf believe that there is not actually a right or an appropriate decision made giving children hearing aids when they might be deaf. So they believe that they're excluding those people from the deaf community that they might otherwise be involved in. So there are massive different ethical issues just in one tiny investment. So... It's very complicated. And usually in the responsible investment super funds, you don't necessarily know the individual companies they invest in. You can find out, but you have to actively find out. You might be listening to this and thinking, well, it's all well and good to help out where I can, but will I get my money at the end? Will I have enough to live off when I can't work anymore? And aren't these funds doing their job by just ensuring that I get the most out of my investment? I think it's probably more that they see as their mandate is to provide for the super fund holders and the members. So I think that's how they view it. So rather than, I don't think they would argue that it was more ethical. I think they would leave the return to speak for itself. Um, But certainly a lot of those funds are really just investing in a diversified manner. But diversified, of course, means a whole lot of things, as I suggested before, about sweatshops and those sort of ideas. There's a lot of different um, things that you might be able to think of about that are not necessarily um, what we might deem ethical. Um, Rainforests, um, um, illegal logging, you know, a number of those sort of issues as well. So time to get on top of that super. Hey, Jake. Well, you said it before. You've still got another 10 years, so that means I do too. (laughs) You're listening to Think Sustainability on 2SER 107.3. This has probably happened to you. A young face peering at you on your walk to work. Half the time you have your headphones in or you're looking down at your phone, the guy keeps on waving. And then you see his binder. They want to talk to you about underprivileged children. You feel pretty guilty saying no, right? But it's the same guy every day. He's seen you before and you feel bad saying no every time. It's a hard task to say no to charity, but when there's so much of it, when is it worthwhile? And is my money really helping that underprivileged kid he's showing me? Or is it going back into this guy's pay? Alex Eunice is from the Hatchery at UTS and is looking at how charity might need to change its approach. The first thing I learnt when I went into this space was charities should be allowed to operate like a business. I mean, when I brought up charities with my friends who are my age, I mean, I'm 23, and they're like, I hate charities that spend all their money on overheads. Try and run any business without overheads. Try and do anything without administration costs. So charities don't have this magic wand where they can't spend any money on anything. The focus should be on, is the money they're spending on administration leading them to do things that are really good? And if that's the case then why shouldn't they spend money on admin? How are they supposed to grow and actually make the impact that they want to make? So I think whether they are not-for-profits or not, 
at this stage, it doesn't bother me. What bothers me is that people will say they spend money on overheads. If the end result is great, then it's fine. Like I wouldn't have no problem with a charity that spent 50% on their overheads if I knew they were doing research and the right marketing and building the right partnerships to then move on and actually execute what they want to do. And if they execute it well, then what's, how does, why does it matter how much they spent on overheads if they delivered what they said they would? And I think you just speaking to your friends or saying what your friends have said is reflective of what a lot of people think, that that's the space of charity and is my money just going back in to perhaps pay these people or to essentially boost up the marketing of these charities? In regards to chuggers, I mean, it comes down to could that money be spent but like more effectively, like is that really was that money spent paying an hourly rate plus a commission? The argument I think needs to be not centered about like what the money's being spent on rather than what result comes out of that money being spent. I think that's where the focus needs to lie, and that requires a whole lot more you know transparency of reporting. It requires the charities themselves or the organizations to be very critical of themselves. And I think that's what's drawn me into looking at this space is that, you know, I can't remember the exact names, but in, in William McCaskill's book, Doing Good Better, he gives you, puts three charities to you. Uh, and the first one, it's a, it's a charity that gives books to children in schools in Africa. On a charity index, I can't remember the name again, but they got rated really high for the sake of this discussion. They got rated like 99 because they spent nothing on overheads and they said, we're going to get books to schools. And they did it. Whereas there was another charity which is called Development Media International and they're an educational charity and they try and educate children about the importance of washing your hands, the importance of hygiene and making sure you do those things. And they spent about 40% on overheads. When I first read that, I went, well, I go to the books. And then the book went on then to describe that by teaching children how to wash their hands, they were no longer dying from simple things like diarrhea which we would never die from in Australia and if they were dying then they didn't have a chance to read those books and then it's where my perception really started to change around charities is that if they spent the exact same money and you know they spent only 60% on the end product that research they did and that work they did to create that product actually saved lives for me welfare is more important than how we got there so this is what you're looking at in your research for the hatchery for the hatchery we want to see if if young people care about this. So what we what we did is we went, me, myself and Rosalind and James, we worked together twice a week and we went, hey, these, I mean, charity spaces are great, but how do we get more young people donating regularly? And the first thing that came up was, I don't have enough money, you know, or if I did give, what difference does it make? I had never donated to charity before I started this project. First time I donated to charity is when we ran an experiment of donating to charity. So, right, like I, I am not by any means, I'm trying to solve this problem for myself as well because I felt that I couldn't make a difference. I didn't know that I could with the little I had. When I heard this, I was like, great, there's no real excuse for me personally not to do anything if I know that I could donate $5 a week and it would make it a really great impact. And do other people think that? Do, would other people agree? Would, I, would a conversation with a friend make them want to give to those charities as well? And if enough people said that, then why should we, we should do something about it? So talk about the experiment. What did you actually do? It was quite interesting because James 
wasn't completely sold on this idea of effective charities either and you know it required us talking about it and letting it sit and to, we had to also address the fact that if you had a friend who was affected by cancer, I mean, I, my grandfather just passed away from cancer in December. He's like, I had to think, like, what, do I want to donate to cancer research? And is it something that's really close to me? I personally don't work that way. But again, this is why the hatchery is so great is because they teach you about the importance of empathy. And if you have a solution or even a problem you want to work on, you need to understand if that is the same problem for everyone out there. So we said we're, we're between the ages of 18 and 24, so they're the people we're going to target. They're the people we're going to do our research on because I can't solve the problem of a 50-year-old, like really solve it for him because I haven't experienced what he or she has experienced. The first experiment we did was we got $20 worth of five-cent pieces and we got nine jars and each jar represented a charity. And we wanted to know that if money wasn't a barrier, what charities people would donate their money to. So we set up a sign saying free donations. We had the instructions. So have you ever been to Grilled? Yes. Okay, so you know how they give yeah. you it. Okay, so we kind of emulated that experience. So instead of bottle caps, we actually gave people money. Because um, at Grilled, they will normally have three different jars and they're three different organizations that you will then get pledge your support to by throwing the little lid bottle into the jar. And I'm right, the one that has the most is where they donate. Yes. Set, right. yeah. So we, we did that. We had $20 and the one that had the most five cent pieces, we were going to donate the entire $20 to the charity. And three of those charities were not bad, but just what these mega charities like World Vision, Save the, like everyone knows them, Save the Children, um, very well marketed charities. They understood what people needed to engage. And the other, and we had six of these effective charities. For example, one of them is called SCI, which stands for Schistosomiosis Control Initiative. Like it's even hard to say. It took me about a week of practicing it to nail it like that. And we had three different uh, causes. So we had hunger and we had women and we had poverty. And for each cause, we had an A4 piece of paper with the headings of each charity and then a little short bio right? and then a jar corresponding. At first, when we didn't engage with anyone, we kind of were just two dudes sitting there with a bit of music playing, uh, some jars on a table and a sign saying, donate to charity for free. And it was just super weird, right? Like, <laughs> I, I've never felt so strange. Like, I, I, like, I've never done anything with societies at uni. Like, I, I'm, I've talked to people a lot, but sitting there and just kind of like hanging out with a little UE boom playing um, <laughs> anything from uh, Chic to uh, Kanye West, it was, it was definitely a strange moment. And... It was only until we actually kind of gave people a call to action. So we'd like give them the coin and be like, hey, can you help me donate my money? And the floor, that even confused people. They're like, what are you talking about? Like, I'm like, no, no, here's my money. Like, can you help me pick a charity? The one with the most, you know, coins is what we're going to donate to. And at first people were a little bit standoffish because of this whole culture of like, you know, I'm busy, I'm at uni and uh, I don't have time. Or like, I'm like, no, no, just go pick a, Like, even if you don't want to look, like if you just give me like three seconds, like just chuck it in. And we just wanted to see how people engage with the content. And the Save the Children won, and we donated $29 because actually people went out of their way, three people went out of their way to actually give us money as well. It was really evident that people that didn't engage with the content would just typically go for Save the Children or World Vision, you know, because they have that trust built over years of advertising and, you know, they're prominent. And then when people would really engage with the content, you know, with those effective charities, it, they make it really clear how much it costs to do what they say they're going to do. Uh, so people would be like, oh, that's cool. And some people would then go for like living goods or, you know, they would go for SCI, which is deworming pills. And I really want to see a lot more accountability than what's on offer at the moment. I went on to GiveWell's site and I saw an income sheet and a 
balance sheet and you know and I was like okay I kind of get these numbers and that's great that's transparent and companies showing us you know what percentage of their money they spend on you know marketing and what percentage they spend on in-house costs and I think that's great but it's very high level I don't know whether it is possible yet and I'm really interested in exploring how me as an individual if I donated money to you if I donated to 2SER I would see that my money actually went to 2SER and even hopefully saw when that money got used and kind of taking a more supply chain viewpoint of finances in business and charitable giving. I think uh, it's looking like it might be a lot more possible with cryptocurrencies rather than fiat currencies, but the fact that it's even that this idea of decentralized ledgers is becoming a thing for me is very exciting and I'm looking forward to exploring it a lot more. Alex Eunice from The Hatchery at UTS. Before we move on, let's retrace our steps for a minute. At the top of the show, we were talking about superannuation. When we invest, we expect a return. That's how it works. And if we can do that with a guilt-free carbon footprint, all the better. The same goes for other forms of investment. Whether this be individual investors, business, multinationals, impact investment is a term that's becoming more and more important as we move into an era of combating climate change. But what exactly is impact investment? Let's bring back Deborah Cotton from earlier to explain things for us. So impact investment is a new way of raising funds for social good, for want of a better term, where the investors are getting a return, a literal um, income back from their investment, and it's also doing a social good. So it's not pure philanthropy. It's not a charity. So you're not getting your tax-deductible charity donation, but you are getting a rate of return on your investment. Most impact investments are made into non-profits and social enterprises where the investors can give money to these bodies, help them make a change, and then benefit from the result. There are a number of organisations who do or organise, if you like, social investments. So one example that a company might decide, okay, well, what we can do is we can buy some land in the city and we can build housing on that. So we need investment in order to um, build that housing. What we will do as an investment is we will actually sell off some of the housing that we build, so like a normal housing investment, but we will maintain some of the housing as well and we will provide that to low-income families. So the amount that the low-income families have to pay will be enough to cover the costs, the maintenance, all of those sort of things, and the investors have received their return from the other part of the investment. So the majority of that investment, which has been for normal housing, where you earn a return. It's also not limited to just corporations and business. So who are the others involved? Oh, I think that's a big question because I think it's a lot of um, people. So there are large investors and small investors. So essentially, you can invest any amount of money at all. So there are a few organisations in Australia and it's increasing. It's actually much bigger overseas. So in UK, Europe and the US, it's been going for a lot longer. So their funds are larger. But essentially, I can invest any amount of money into an investment, and I'm just investing in part of it. So any kind of investment, it might be a housing investment or something like that, where I might be only putting in $1,000. But when you have enough people putting that money in, then the whole investment can occur. And when these investments do well, it doesn't go unnoticed. 
Well, some of the investments that have done overseas, and there's not as much of this here, but some of the investments will be alongside government. So, for example, if there is a program that is um, to train people for employment and they're able to actually achieve a higher level of employment, so get a lot of people off the unemployment benefits, then the government is happy to pay those funds out as a return on the investment because they're no longer having to pay unemployment benefits. They're probably even getting the benefits of some income tax being paid. So some of these can actually involve government and some of that happens in the US. There'll be training programs. Sometimes they're as simple as literacy programs where they're in some areas maybe in the US where the literacy levels are very low and the people are going to have a lot of struggle trying to get a job. If they can improve those, then they can actually improve the employment opportunities. And overall, if they start doing some of those sort of things, as you know, as soon as people start getting jobs in an area and start earning money, there's more money to spend. And it's a self-evolving thing, self-satisfying. So essentially, you're getting your return in that way. If we learn anything from our bit on superannuation, a decent return is always helpful. So do most impact investors get their money's worth? It should be commensurate with the sort of level of risk that you're undertaking, and that's normally what we expect from an investment. That considering is the incentive the money or the social good? I think it's about the social impact, personally. I don't know that from any particular research. But a lot of the time, though, they can't necessarily afford to just give money away. So the pure philanthropy is a little bit beyond their means. So in order to do this type of investing, you have to be seeking it out. There are plenty of options available for you, but you have to actually be looking for it. Otherwise, I can simply put my money in a bank or a, you know, buy a bank bill or something like that. Deborah Cotton, lecturer from the Finance Discipline Group in the UTS Business School. If impact investment is less about the return and more about the impact it can have, crowdfunding is just one example of how investors can do their bit. Chuffed is an online crowdfunder that only funds non-profits and social enterprises and showcases a huge number of campaigns. On Chuffed, the return for the investor can be in the form of prizing, recognition or, depending on the campaign, financial return in the long run. Prashant Paramanthan is the CEO of Chuffed and says crowdfunding can be an attractive investment. I have a theory that pretty much any campaign that's run well can do well on crowdfunding. I I don't think that the medium of crowdfunding discriminates against the topic area or the cause or it's like particularly for some sexy causes over non-sexy causes. Um, I think the success of campaigns from, I mean, we've run two and a half thousand campaigns um, and, and the success is really determined by how much effort do the campaigners put into running their campaigns. And just in case you don't believe me around, like, you can sell things that are totally unsexy on crowdfunding. Uh, I mean, if you, if you think about the most unsexy thing to sell in Cherry Land, like a group of people that people have very little sympathy for, uh, it'd be men in jail. And then this group down in Castle, Maine, which is just outside of Melbourne, they're a group of older people who are the friends of Castle Main Library. They decided they would run a campaign that was about them going into their local jail and sitting down with 
these inmates, like beefy, tattered up, exactly what you imagine them to look like, and sitting down reading Peppa Pig with them. And they would record these readings of Peppa Pig onto CDs and then they would send that CD along with a copy of that book to that inmate's kids so that the kids didn't miss out on hearing their dad read to them at night time. That's like an incredible way of selling an audience that would be otherwise really difficult to sell. Chuffed was impact invested by venture capitalist firm Blackbird Ventures and Telstra. So with the help in place, it's able to serve its purpose. And one of their main duties, choose the right campaigns. So we have a broad social cause test. You've got to be doing a project that is in either the public benefit or somebody else's benefit other than yourself. There have been a couple of... Red Cross refugee caseworkers that reunited a refugee family after kind of 23 years of not seeing each other, all the way to the Environmental Defenders Office runs campaigns all the time to fight the New Adani coal mine. There's been animal welfare shelters that have outgrown their space and want to start up a new space. We're trying to change how people think of the sector and how fundraising happens in the sector. And we use a business to affect that cause. Prashan Paramanthan, CEO of Chuffed. Thanks for listening to the show. Think Sustainability is produced with the assistance of the University of Technology Sydney and 2SER. For more information about what you've heard today, head along to our website, 2SER.com forward slash Think Sustainability. You can also subscribe to us in your favourite podcast app. Just search for Think Sustainability. I'm Jake Morecambe. I'm Ellen Levader. See you next week.